0: main street to wall street global business celebrity and former fortune 100 c-suite executive jeffrey hazlett takes you inside the good the bad and the ugly of businesses today saddle up it's time for all business with jeffrey hazlett
1: a brand is nothing but a promise delivered how are brands today keeping up with their customer demands What types of practices and strategies are they implementing to better engage with their loyal base? My guest today is PepsiCo Food Services Global Chief Marketing Officer, Scott Finlow. He sheds light on what is resonating with customers right now, how brands have had to pivot in order to remain relevant, and the importance of culture. Hey, in this day and age, it's not enough to have a great product, you also need sustainable practices and align the brand's values with those of the customers, and we'll be talking about that in this next issue of All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Welcome, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Looking forward to it. So, my first question comes from. By the way, I always like to talk about people's pedigree. Where did you come before PepsiCo? Uh,
2: well, I was uh, uh, someone who came to PepsiCo from a company called uh, IRI. It was my first job out of college, and uh, I went to Tufts and was an English major. So. Uh, entered the world of kind of CPG marketing through maybe the back door at IRI, uh, got to know PepsiCo a little bit, and uh, and that's how I came to, to PepsiCo. I think what was appealing to me about PepsiCo was uh, the amazing portfolio of brands initially. Uh, and as I worked with the PepsiCo folks, I really was drawn to the people uh, and some of the culture there uh, as well, or here, I should say now. And uh, a little bit of a quick tour, if you want, on my career. Uh, Twenty sure. plus years with the company, a variety of different roles, mostly marketing, a few insights roles as well. Uh, I've had uh, an amazing set of experiences. Actually, North America. Done some brand work. Was in Asia Pacific for six years. Had a chance to work across almost every market in Asia Pac and get to know the people there, the consumers. Uh, our partners, the markets, our portfolio, which differs over there, get to launch some amazing new brands, stand up some new businesses from from the ground, and uh, and worked on the beverage business as well as the foods business. And back in the U.S. for the last ten or so years, and you know, I've made my way to uh, uh, this food service role, which uh, you know, this is the role that I job uh, uh, that I love rather, and um, you know, wake up every day excited to figure out how to help and build our brands and grow our business. So
1: what's been the most funnest part about working at PepsiCo?
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, the, it's a, it's a cultural thing. I mean, it's the intersection of a couple of those things, but because the culture at PepsiCo is you wake up every day and you have to figure out, you know, how you continue to grow, how you continue to invent, uh, how you leverage the portfolio of amazing brands we have and continue to connect them to people. You talked about a promise right at front of a brand to people. It's nothing more than that. You know, how do we continue to evolve that um, uh, with the portfolio we have and the markets we're competing in? And as your setup said, you know, as the world radically changes, it's it's always changing. And sometimes the pace of change is uh, faster than others. And maybe we're all feeling that right now. You know, when you look at
1: uh, a marketing, we always talk about, is it, a, is it a house of brands or is it a branded house, right? you've got a little bit of both and you know we describe the c-suite network as this giant sequoia tree and on this giant sequoia tree we've got all these different pieces of the brand of this environment and Pep- pepsico is a lot like that you know in terms of it's got this overarching pepsico brand but you got pepsi then you've got doritos you got all these other great brands that are heart of it do you guys how i mean what do you consider yourself is it a branded house or a house of brands
2: yeah we're uh, we're really what you'd probably call a house of brands under that um you know that framing uh, you know, I think the way to answer that is through the consumer. And, you know, yeah. the consumer is, as Greg was saying up front, is, you know, his kid's eating Doritos right now. He's not eating Frito-Lay and he's not yeah. eating PepsiCo. And, uh, you know, we, we connect to people through our brands. We got a portfolio of $23 billion brands from around the world. And, and that's really what, um, what we've developed. So that's how we think about it.
1: But inside that company, I mean, you've got to lay over some of that, like that's the PepsiCo way or the Pepsi way. I got to imagine that's in the DNA of all the product sets or it doesn't get it to be as successful in scale as you normally have. Kind of like Procter & Gamble does. I mean, that's a great way of being able to describe it like that, too,
2: right? Absolutely. And I think there's um, there are cultural norms, there are behaviors, there are strategies and there are capabilities, you know, at the PepsiCo level that we deploy across the business. And then as you as you think about customers, what we also do is we may have a foods business and a beverage business. But when we go to Walmart, we go as one business. And, you know, that's the power of a portfolio like ours. So, you know, bringing those brands together uh, in service of of our customers is uh, is a critical component of Uh, Of how the value of PepsiCo uh, is really demonstrated, uh, I think, to the most important folks we work with, which, um, you know, from a customer point of view.
1: Oh, well, it's got to give you great leverage too. I mean, um, I didn't have that ability in Kodak like you do here with lots of different brands. Cause we were one brand. I mean, we were no doubt about it. It was Kodak this Kodak that. So everything, no matter what we would have bought and we bought a lot of companies, <laughs> you, you drank the Kodak Kool-Aid the first day you came in or you, you know, you're going to go find another beverage of of your sort. That's got to give you some pretty really good leverage to be able to go in and say, hey, you want this? Well, you got to take this brand new product, too, and you got to put that on the end cap. And this is what we want to see you buy.
2: Yeah, there's there's definitely an aspect of that. And uh, what I would say is, as we do it, it also um, it brings together the power of our different organizations. One of the one of the roles that that I've uh, played was bringing together our North America commercial organization uh, about five years ago under a group we called the Demand Accelerator. And what that allowed us to do is bring our shopper insights, our shopper marketing, our category leadership, uh, all together as PepsiCo. And man, the power of doing that and bringing together all the capability, all the people, all the data, all the services for all of our customers, you know that really paid off. So if you look at you know the, the way we were ranked in the industry by our customers, we were historically kind of a number three or number four player. And then we just ratcheted straight to the top and we're now the number one supplier in North America. And we've done that, I believe it's three to four years running now, based on having stood that up. So part of it's the power of the brands, part of it's the power of coming together in that way. And is there some leverage behind that and some, you know, you try to get some, you know, get some wins as part of that, of course. Yeah. So a lot of
1: times in big organizations, you know, we, we centralize, then we decentralize, we centralize, you know, I used to always tell people, they say, I don't like the way it's going right now. I said, so well, will wait six months, it'll change again. You will have another job, you'll be in a new thing and it will be, you know, we'll be going the other way. W- what are you running right now? Are you guys in a centralized perspective where you're bringing it all in-house and more at the corporate level, or are you putting it out to the, to the regions?
2: Um, I think PepsiCo, as a company, has always run a pretty decentralized operation. You know, we like to be close to the market, close to the consumer, and I'll take a global perspective for starters. And, you know, the folks who are running our sectors and running our markets around the world, we empower them a lot because, you know, they're the closest to, to the market. So that's really-, really did that,
1: did that, I'm going to ask, if that, did that come as a result of the bottling operation primarily? Meaning that was the initial piece because when you, because again, to help educate a lot of people, you got a lot of bottling operations that, that they were, that's your real customer. in essence that for a long period of time, they were your franchises, your groups that, that, that served that. Is that part of that legacy?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely part of it. And, you know, as a, as a food and beverage company uh, you know, the, the bottlers play, you know, obviously critical um, partners on the, on the beverage side, on the food side, you know, that's um, you know, that's not the model. But yeah, right. so uh, um, and we've gone from owning, um, uh, you know, some of our bottlers to, to not owning, uh, some of our bottlers over time. And that's been, you know, a swing in the history of the, the U S as well as other markets around, around the world. But I think the you know, the primary focus and in the North American business, I'll use a, a more recent example, you know, we've just put in place about 18 months ago, uh, Uh, A structure that has created five divisions in North America, including Canada, and put five division presidents in place and organizations in place in those markets, including significant marketing and insights organizations. And we feel really good in the North American beverage business about our ability to be um, nationally great and locally even better, as we said. So I think finding that balance between building capabilities uh, and building brands and then executing locally and being close to customers and consumers is you know, I think that's um, that's an ongoing um, uh, call it dynamic uh, in a lot of businesses, including ours. And I feel really good about where we are right now.
1: So when you look at it, you you manufacture a product, you make a product, you create the product. I mean, in this case, it's either beverage or it's foodstuffs. Um, when you we look at the stain, sustainability market, it's projected to be like one hundred and fifty billion in sales in twenty twenty one. Do you think the shift to sustainability is making brands more accountable and transparent today?
2: Yeah, I do. Um and I'm proud of the work we're doing at PepsiCo too. We set a we set a pretty bold goal, so we've set a, you know, some uh, ambitious targets out to 2025 and we're going to hold ourselves to those targets across a number of different areas. Um, you know, a subcomponent of that is to create a world where plastic um, need never become waste. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the specifics on that. But one of the big reasons for that is Consumers expect us, us being companies, to be part of the solution and to help out. And I think we've responded to that and put the the, the relevant focus against it as a result. But you know, if there's a dynamic there um, and, a, and a sense that hey, is that a good thing for the business? You know, I think we believe strongly that you can do good and do well as a business. And I think our mission. Starting with Indra's leadership and now through to Ramon, I think has borne that out. You know, in one example, a couple of examples actually. Uh, if you look across, you know, the categories, 50% of growth in the last five years is driven is driven by more sustainable offerings. So consumers are looking for it. Yeah, uh, and we're starting to see it from our customers too. We just made an announcement this week. Uh, the Vanderbilt University folks. Uh, converted to PepsiCo and they did it primarily because of our sustainability initiatives because they're trying to take plastic off campus and they saw us as the best partner to help them do that.
1: Yeah. So when you think about uh, that sustainability piece of it and doing that, how how do you balance the shareholder interest with sustainability practices?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to you know, the point I made about if half the growth is going to come from more sustainable initiatives, then we should be leaning in that direction. And, you know, our first behavior, when I talked about PepsiCo behaviors that transcend markets and transcend businesses is to be consumer centric. And if we do that, and we're always being close to the consumer and building our brands and putting our initiatives and investments uh, in place based on that, Um, And in this instance, doing it in a more sustainable way, then I think we're going to be delivering improved shareholder results. And it's not a trade-off. And I think, you know, our results have borne that out. A you know a, a deeper um, point on that that I think is a nuance is we also have to do it because in the end it's all circular right you know if you think about plastic as a as a, an important component let's say of packaging we need to make sure we're um, we're creating closed loops in a circular economy if we're going to make commitments to use recycled plastic and not use virgin PET or plastic in our packaging we've got to make sure we're you know, we're investing in that entire ecosystem in order to make sure there's uh, supply for that. And we're, uh, you know, we're creating that and putting initiatives in place. So uh, I think there's, um, there's a lot of reasons to suggest that these are the right initiatives to do from a shareholder perspective too. And I think not to get into it, but, you know, there's momentum in the call it investment community, you know, to seek out companies that are, are doing that as well. I think we're seeing growth in those kinds of you know, call it funds and markets as well.
1: Well, you'll get, you'll get, you'll get not only credits with it, but you'll also get, you know, kudos and the credits that go with that, which is shareholder price and a lot of things. And on this, on the adverse effect, if you're not living up to that, they'll, they'll ding you there too. Either
2: yeah, way. Yeah. Well, and I think if we're not living up to it, then, you know, we're going to figure out how to evolve our, um, our strategy and commitment to do that. But in this, at this point, we're feeling great about it.
1: Do you think the public understands or the consumer understands how difficult it is to change that over? Like to say, well, we're not going to use plastic anymore. I mean, a lot of people think that's a simple kind of thing to do, but it's not. I mean, like right now, I can tell you from our members, they're trying to buy spray bottles. You can't find spray bottles right now because everybody wants spray bottles to be able to put, you know, some type of sanitizer in, you know, so I, do you think they understand the, the the depth of that kind of decision?
2: Well, I'm going to give the consumer credit and I say that, you know, they're seeking to understand and there isn't always the information uh, available. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a habit that needs to be built. But, you know, a fun fact that might bring that to life and answer that is that I think 75 percent of consumers think recycling is harder than doing their taxes. So, you know, there's clearly an opportunity for us to make it easier for both. Mm -hmm. Are you incentivized enough to do that? Uh, I think there are uh, more ways we can work together with our customers to do that. I mean, that's a it's a complicated market, right? Because then you're right. into uh, you're into local uh, municipalities and different programs and things like that. So we could probably take a separate hour to to get into that, well, and I would probably put you in touch with someone else to do it.
1: Yeah, well, we're kind of talking about uh, the plastic side of it. The biggest, I think, the probably bigger than the plastic for you is actually water, right? I mean, you've gotta be one of the biggest uses of water, if I look at just the bottling alone,
2: uh, of water uh, of any manufacturer that's out there. Yeah, yeah, and, we've, and we've, we recognize that and we've made commitments and, uh, and remarkable reductions in uh, our water footprint, both in the U.S. and around the world, particularly in developing markets where the problem to solve is more significant. So proud of the work we've done in places like India to make sure that um, you know we are being a more sustainable partner for people and for uh, for countries like that.
1: So, which which is the bigger piece of your business? And I apologize for not going to your annual report to take a look at, but which is is it the consumer side of it, or is it the restaurant B two B side of it?
2: Um, food service is about twenty percent of our uh, total business. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, to give you a sense for that, um, you know, in restaurants that goes beyond restaurants. France, that's you know, how many when,
1: billions is that just, just, just so we can classify
2: it. How many billions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, let's call it a $5 billion business at this point um, for you know, the food service business. And that's in terms of percentage of the, um, uh, the market. And I'll tell you a little bit about what food service is for those who may wonder what the heck is food service. You know, food service is what we describe as, you know, it's where you are when you're not at home and you're often, kind of living, working, dining, playing. So in addition to restaurants, it's places like, you know, it's certainly movie theaters, it's, um, you know, it's stadiums, it's workplace, if you're there or, you know, eventually going back there at colleges and universities it's schools, you know, those are, it's Vail Resorts, it's, you know, it's Marriott, uh, it's Hershey Park, it's Taco Bell, it's Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, that's food service just to give you a sense for, um, you know, what we mean when we say that, what that $5 billion business is. C-Suite
0: Radio.
1: So how are you dealing with, I mean, that's got, this whole crisis has got to be uh, a real problem for you, I would say, or a challenge, I won't say a problem. It's a challenge because yeah. that business is down overall. Um, not everything. Uh, a lot of restaurants are doing really well. So, uh, what are you doing to to make the difference? I got to imagine somebody's coming to you and saying, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, we made a promise to the street. We got to hit that number. We don't hit that number. There, there goes bonuses. There goes there goes jobs. There goes communities. There goes investments." So, what? How are you dealing with that?
2: Yeah. Um, I- Really proud of the way we've responded actually. And we pivoted really quickly and we did it in service of people. So the first thing we did back in the early days of this, if you can recall that, was we looked after our own people, people on the front lines who um who were in and out of stores and in and out of plants. We looked after our own people on even our headquarter teams uh, to a greater degree, made sure everyone was safe, made sure everyone was healthy. And we've continued to do that as a first focus. And I think we've come closer as a result of that organizationally, health-wise, et cetera. The second thing we did is we we responded and pivoted to meet the needs of some of those customers you're talking about. And uh, we've done a bunch of work in support uh, of those customers uh, as well. So, you know, one area is around um, delivery to your point, like that's a new behavior for some of our restaurant customers. So uh, we partnered up with the Great American Takeout. Um, We worked on a program called Drinks On Us uh, as part of the Global Citizen uh, show. And we've continued to just support our local customers as well to help stand them up with the tools they need to even get delivery going. Um, and we've raised a ton of money in partnership with Guy Fieri and the National Restaurant Association through the Restaurant Relief Fund. We've helped to raise $24 million. You might have seen some of that. We did the Nacho Average Showdown with Bill Murray and Guy. We did the. Um, some good news um, partnership with John Krasinski. Uh, and that was a, a little bit of magic that led to another $3 million commitment to that. So, you know, we, uh, I think have done some good work to respond and responded quickly. And some of those behaviors about being consumer centric and acting like an owner and moving fast have, have been really key to that. And we've supported a bunch of other customers as well. I, I could go on.
1: Well, you know, I, I appreciate that. And when you're a big company, you you have some responsibility, I think, there. You just can't, uh, you know, ignore those people that help serve you or serve them. So what if, how about the restaurant industry has gotten hit pretty hard? Are you doing anything in special
2: with the workers in the industry? Yeah, I mean, that restaurant relief fund is probably the best example. And, uh, you know, raising $25 million for them, I think, was one thing to do to help them with $500 grants for those who were impacted yeah. and had lost their jobs. I think from a um, more sustainable, ongoing perspective, we've been trying to help them with some of those delivery services and tools and programs. So that's helping them keep their businesses growing in the off-premise world. And we've also um, done a bunch of innovation work to help them ensure that the consumers feel that the restaurant is safe. So doing things like guards for the fountain machine, you know, putting different protocols in place to... Uh, to ensure that consumers who are going back either on premise or dining outside are feeling like it's safe and that it's, you know, safe to eat, safe to drink, safe to order, all those sorts of things. So we've been partnering with our customers in a number of different ways uh, in that regard as well. And all you that's see, new, right? We weren't planning on any yeah, of that in February. No, exactly. Right? That's brand
1: new yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. like, Oh my. And you, and by the way, it's interesting as we're finding out in these interviews that we're doing with executives across the board is you're, these decisions are like the guard on the soda machine, right? Are all being done? They're one, they're expensive, right? If we know that was money you were counting, and two, you guys are getting in the middle of those discussions, which I think is great. From a management team, is that you know what's going on, as opposed to just as going down line. And I think that's a, that's to me, uh, it's it's nice to see. You know, it's nice to see that you're talking about. Well, where are we putting the guards? Where are we putting this? Where how are we doing this? Because it's not going away. It's going to keep
2: going that way, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, none of us knows the future, but what we do know is that we have to behave in different ways, be more responsive, be more agile. And I think, you know, you talked about brands and purpose up front. I think what what we have is a renewed purpose to really focus on people and help people right now um, as, a, as a food service business. And those people, of, you know, there are a lot of people who have been massively impacted by this. And yeah, we want to build our brands, but we need to help support our customers and and build their businesses back. And we need to do that for PepsiCo. We need to do it for our customers. And candidly, we need to do it for the world, right? We We all want restaurants for when, you know, this thing is, when we're on the other side of it, it's where we go, you know, live our lives, right? It's where we celebrate our birthdays. It's where we have Friday night happy hours. We want those places to be Thriving, and you know, we want to help make sure that you know we build America back the way you know we and the rest yep. of the world the way it was before this hit. Yeah,
1: and I don't want just Friday happy hours. I want them every day. I want them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, duly <laughs> noted.
1: Exactly. So let's make sure we put that out there as a condition of satisfaction. So let me ask you a question. In the marketing side of things, you know, there's you know, as being a CMO myself uh, at one point, uh, and you're doing in this role how much do you think technology is changing what you and I were doing as CMOs?
2: Uh, I mean, I think a fair amount, but I tend to think of technology as an enabler. Uh, you know, there's some massive, you know, obviously structural changes, things like mobile that we're all aware of. And when I, you know, I think when I think of things like artificial intelligence or gesture or voice and things like that, I think of them as, you know, things we need to consider. Um, in order to meet um, you know, genuine consumer problems to solve, customer problems to solve, et cetera. You know, that said, I do think there are some that are, um, that are pretty relevant that we're working on right now. You know, one of them is, and I should talk a little bit about this, um, one of the initiatives we've got, which is the SodaStream Professional Um, Which we've launched. So, you know, this is a digitally connected, mobile connected hydration station for workplace, for college, um, you know, for lodging uh, under the SodaStream brand, which we acquired a couple of years ago, which has been an amazingly accretive um, uh, acquisition, I think, uh, for us as a company in the hydration space around the world. And what we've done is we've essentially put together a piece of equipment that allows you to essentially personalize your hydration choices. So a variety of different flavors at, at your personalized temperature, at your personalized carbonation level, at your personalized flavor intensity level, allows you to save that stuff. It allows you to um, you know, set your own personal hydration objectives. And now we've used technology to allow you to do that in a contactless way. So that's an example of us with a, an important initiative and a platform that's helping people be healthier that's helping them be hydrated and we've now quickly pivoted to make sure that they can do that in a way where they feel safe and we've essentially used you know qr code capabilities and the ability to digitally connect a phone or a bottle that's got an engraved qr code straight to the equipment no hands you know off you go you get your personalized um you get your personalized water and you feel safer about it. So that's well, a good example. Well, but it's not
1: that. just water, right? I mean, if I were, if I were mayor Bloomberg, my former boss, right. He, he would talk, he would say, look, that's some flowery language for selling sugary drinks, you know, and and, and I'm not criticizing because I, I love the way you did it's a hydration station. And I yeah. know that yeah. it's a great way to be able to drink infused water. Got one right here. Love it. Love it. It's my favorite. Right. Yep. So, but, but to some extent you've also got that side of
2: it. How do you balance that? Yeah. I mean, that's an example that is on just a hydration piece of equipment under the soda stream brand. So it's all water, it's flavored water. It's infused it's, water to your point. It's it's only water. It's, yeah. o- it's only infused water.
1: Okay. I didn't it's know if it, I, so, I thought you could also make your own version of Pepsi off of that.
2: Uh, With the SodaStream products at home, the existing SodaStream products, there's a a small part of that, yeah, is the ability to... To, um, to create a soft drink at home. So um, brands like Pepsi, brands like Bubbly, the ability to do that at home as well. And essentially, uh, make my own model at home is, is definitely a component of that sort of stream business too. What I'm talking about is something we've launched in food service, which is this professional unit um, that we're putting into some, some of these other locations as well. So that's where I think that you know, the technology piece really comes in. And I think this idea of contactless uh, is going to continue um, obviously, mobile, and we'll continue to explore some of these other areas as well. well
1: I mean, it's like an Internet of Things. I mean, in terms of that piece of it, right? So I can now walk with my own bottle. I know what I like. I can just put it up there, and it feeds it to me. I don't have to touch it. Don't touch. It, or I can do it off my phone, right? Or maybe it's it. a wearable device as well, right? You got it.
2: You yeah. that is it, and uh, what it allows you I to do a commercial is, for you? Yeah, you're be, li- you you track your behavior <laughs> using as your bottle connects. You know, we've got some amazing bottles that we've developed through our design team, which is an amazing capability we've got. You know, and you can authenticate, you can personalize. And then over time, you know, we'll look at how we can build that connected ecosystem, not just for this professional unit, but back into the at-home unit. But more so,
1: importantly, you'll have the data on the people as well. So you know that I like to drink this particular kind and you know what times, you know, if it's starting to run out and I got a heavy user on there and I got, uh, I can only imagine the kind of things, which leads to me like uh, one last question here, maybe two, yeah. but one last question about, I think it's very unique that you have the ability to really household you've got a lot of different brands so you can really team up to household with one product over another. Do you do, are you doing a lot more of that where I, I I've got a heavy user over here in this product and then I got a heavy, you know, eater or user over here. Can do you have the ability to be able to match those?
2: Yeah. Well, what we've done is we've started to build, um, call it databases that'll allow us to better understand behavior more broadly. And we're, we're working to build, um, I would say more of a perspective on the full portfolio of consumption, Uh, you know, in some cases together with our customers like Kroger. So in partnership with what they're doing with their 8451 capability, or in partnership Mm -hmm. with what a target's doing. Um, So we're often doing that together with some of our customers to get smarter about innovation, to get smarter about programming, to get smarter about, you know, those kinds of targets and I just want to be clear, we're, we're super sensitive and careful about, um, you know, things like privacy and making sure we're doing that in a way that is, um, you know, that is really responsible, um, so that, you know, we're helping people out and, um, in doing it together with our customers in a way where, um, yeah, we're we're respecting all those all those dynamics as well. But data is clearly going to be an area of importance for us. I and mean, on the food service side, by the way, we're starting to do the same kinds of things, right? If you look at a customer, you know, some of our customers that are building loyalty programs and uh, and stepping up some of their own digital programs, leaning into their apps, looking at loyalty as a as a greater priority. We're obviously working together with them in that regard as well.
1: I would think you even have a better opportunity on that side than you do on the consumer side because you can readily identify more of those customers. But uh, one last question, and I have to ask you: Does do you ever catch any of your folks, uh, you know, drinking the wrong kind of Kool Aid every once in a while? They're 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 in a meeting and they're
2: grabbing somebody else's product rather than yours you know it's a it's one of the things about pepsico is we have such a broad portfolio and it gets broader all the time when i started 20 odd years ago it was you know pepsi and mountain dew and aquafina and now there's literally 23 billion dollar brands and you know and another 100 um, that are uh, not quite as big so i won't say it never happens but it's pretty rare uh, for us to, um for us as employees uh, well, to do that I, I, Tell you one last story and I'll turn
1: it over to Tricia and to Greg to go to the questions. But Scott, many years ago, 10 years ago, I released the book, uh, The Mirror Test. And in there, I talked about my wonderful addiction with Mountain Dew. I love Mountain Dew. And I used to drink 10, 12 bottles of it a day. I mean, laced with then five-hour energy drinks and espresso coffee and everything. But I was hooked on it. And I wrote about it in my book. And Pepsi... Uh, the CMO of Pepsi at the time was a good friend of mine. And, sh- and one day I open up uh, the door and there's a PepsiCo truck and they're delivering me pallets of diet Mountain Dew because I was telling people all about it. And, uh, now I learned a lot smarter. Now I write about Rolexes and Mercedes and things like that. <laughs> like, oh, right there. So thank you for that. All right, Tricia and Greg, let's turn it over and let's uh, let's get to somebody's question. What a great bunch of questions! Give, give Scott has got a big, uh, big, lots of Cs if you would for a, what a great interview. Uh, good job. We appreciate it so much. Thanks for being a part of all business with Jeffrey Hazel. Well, let's turn it over to Tricia and Greg.
0: C Suite Radio.
3: Fantastic presentation. I want to start off with Steve Leshansky. And what he wants to know is, how hard is it to elevate sales of an already top brand? So I guess, you know, you are the, you know, the gorilla in the room, I guess you and, and, and Coke or your potato chips, you know, Frito-Lay versus another one. So when you're out there marketing, you know, you're not going to be moving the needle from, you know, zero to 60. You're, you're going to go from 60 to 61. So, how does this affect you when you when you're planning out your marketing strategies?
2: Yeah, look, we we build growth plans for all of our brands, um, and I think you know each one of them has their own challenges. You know, I'll use an example of you know Pepsi, the name on the door, and uh, and one of the biggest brands in the company. You know, that's a brand that we're growing um, over the last eighteen months. We've got that brand and growth growing you know, uh, Loda and even high single digits off a massive base right now. And and the way you do that is um, the first thing you do is you've got to make sure you understand that consumer proposition, right? And you got to make sure you're building a brand and culture. And we haven't always done that. And uh, I think that brand is, you know, is getting back to culture uh, and grounding it, um, grounding itself in culture in a way that's helping unlock that growth. You know, there's the connection with you know making sure that you're executing the right way with all your customers and building those plans together in the right way. There's innovation that's a component of that. You got to launch things like and and compete in the zero sugar space in that example. So Pepsi Zero Sugar is the fastest growing brand under the Pepsi trademark. You know, those are the kinds of blocking and tackling um, that you've got to. That you've got to deliver, but it's, you know, you got to muscle through on big brands and really make sure you're continuing to stay relevant and stay consumer focused.
4: Scott, just it's this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And this is more questions than we've ever had. So people are really excited about at all the different directions that you've taken us in. And I think Gina Rodriguez had uh, a couple of really great questions that tapped into exactly where you were just going in terms of culture and so on. So how do you infuse your brand promise internally throughout your leadership and culture? And, you know, if brand is who you are, what you stand for and what you promise, how do you foster that within your team? Um, and, and that just gets more and more interesting as you look at, you know, diverse uh, uh, work spaces now as well.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's a great question. There's a bunch of questions in there. I'll try and address it um, with a couple of things. The first one, and I I mentioned purpose uh, earlier, I think a brand with a clear purpose or a role in society specifically, I think, and being clear about that can be incredibly motivating both to the consumer and also internally for your employees. Right. So, um, and you can also make, um, you know, take initiatives in culture that matter to people. I think, you know, we believe strongly that to build a brand, you've got to have a purpose and you've got to take a side and you've got to take a stand. Um, I'll use the example of our recent commitment as PepsiCo on the racial equality journey. So we made a $400 million commitment over the next five years to help address, uh, racial inequality, um, and uh, structural racism that exists in this country and has done for hundreds of years. And it's not a flash in the pan investment, it's a long term investment. And I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to lead a $50 million um, investment over the next five years to help support locally owned black restaurants, um, or black owned local restaurants, I can say that, I guess, uh, differently. Uh, And man, That is just so incredibly engaging and motivating for, um, for our employees. Um, so many people want to help. They want to be a part of that. You know, they want to commit to that purpose. And I think it just makes us a better company and makes us a better team. And honestly, it, it helps us make a better world. And, you know, when you're talking at that level as an organization, I think, you know, you're doing some good things and you're building culture broadly in a lot of different ways, whether it's through a brand or through a business initiative.
3: Tara Macklin wants to know how the culture and, and things have changed at Pepsi over the last few months during COVID. And also, I want to know this the personal question is one thing that we've noticed over the past few months is that people's habits have changed. So, what are people buying more, you know, Quaker oats because they thought the world was going to end, you know? And, and did you all of a sudden get a really big out of buying all packaged goods because the world was moving to fresh foods. And then all of a sudden when COVID hit, people were buying packaged foods. So that must have been great for you. So what do you foresee going forward? So if you don't mind, first I answer Kara's question about, you know, the culture at PepsiCo, how you rallied around during COVID. And then I'd like to know how people's buying patterns have changed over the past three months and whether or not that's going to continue going forward.
2: Yeah, that's um, sure. I think from a culture point of view, I'd, I'd echo a, a couple of things I've talked about. The first thing I think was just pivoting and being responsive to, our, um, to the needs of our people and to our customers and then you know, to consumers more broadly. And then I'll come to what those consumer shifts are. So underneath that was the speed by which we were, um, we were changing. So we've been doing things a lot faster, things that used to take months, we've done in weeks or even in some cases over a weekend. You know, the Some Good News program that I talked about earlier, that was between Friday and Sunday. Uh, so that was, you know, that was just a weekend between a couple of us. Uh, so we're moving super fast in developing these things, cutting through red tape and bureaucracy uh, and and working faster. Some, you know, I think Jeff, you said up um, earlier, we're still continuing to work with our biggest partners on the agency side, et cetera. Uh, you know, we have, we do have an in-house um, design group. We have an in-house studio that does some of our creative work and we're working with those folks as well. And just making sure we're, you know, we're getting very clear briefs, moving through development process super fast. So it's more about behaviors and a focus on people. I think, Greg, to your question on the on the portfolio front, I love the reference to like you know the preppers go to Quaker first. Um, uh, but we did see um, uh, you know growth in more at home consumption. That's the headline, and a little more healthier, and then areas like immunity. So. Growth in Quaker, growth in Tropicana, um, growth in some of our functional products, but equally, we're spending a lot of time at home doing things like streaming and hanging out with the family. We're not going out. So, the Frito portfolio and snacks has been growing uh, really, really well. A lot of our take home um, beverages have been growing strongly as well. And we all, I think, have seen the growth in kind of retail and stock up behavior. And most of us can probably relate to that in some way as well.
3: Quick follow up, sorry, from Nick Kroll wants to know since you mentioned, snacking. I got to ask you about the Super Bowl. So uh, when Nick Crow wants to know, is the Super Bowl worth it? Please tell us, you know, the truth.
2: (laughs) Well, I guess the short answer then is yes. Um, I think what the, the Super Bowl does is, you know, I talked about building brands and culture and I think if you look at, you know, j and Shakira this year in the halftime show, which is really the anchor of our Super Bowl program and is part of our broader NFL investment and commitment, um, you know, that is a way to just bring our brand to life um, in a, an incredibly, you know, in a huge stage, the biggest stage we can literally, uh, at least in the U.S. market. So, you know, that's what um, really kicks off our year anchors the brand, uh, every year we continue to get better at it every year. I think, you know, Todd Kaplan, who's running that brand is doing a great job at building the Pepsi brand. Um, so I think it's worth it in that regard. And then there's the halo effect of, you know, the retail execution that comes with it. Um, and candidly, we talked about organizational culture. That's a moment where we all get, you know, excited to work at PepsiCo to work on Pepsi. Everyone's talking about it right? Uh, you know, Monday morning and for weeks after, right? Culture is also internally um, culture. So that's what part of what makes PepsiCo an amazing place to work, right? And uh, if we stop doing those things, it'd be a different company.
4: That's fascinating. I love that. Okay. So Lisa Levy is one of our thought council members within C-Suite Network. She's really focused on operational excellence, Scott. And she's asking, you know, how do you set that tone at the top where you can create understanding across all the different teams and all through the organization and really have that operational excellence that goes out into all the tactical applications of the higher level strategy.
2: Oh, great question. Um, I'm surprised she asked it of a marketer. Uh, but I think what, <laughs> what the best way to do that is to have really clear plans to have made the right portfolio choices and, you know, I'll loosely use fewer, bigger, better as, a, as an organizing framework. And then to, to build those plans and roll those plans out um, on an annual basis. Earlier, I talked about that nationally, great, locally, even better structure in North America and how we put these five divisions in place. Our responsibility at the sector level is to set those priorities and really deliver those, those big bets and then start to cascade them through to the divisions. You know, And we work together with them along the way, obviously. It's not a one-way street by any means. Um, and then to deliver those in a way that the supply chain and our go-to-market capabilities and all our frontline sales organizations, they know the priorities, they know the calendar, they can go and execute them with excellence. And we don't ask them to do too many things because you guys on the front line uh, women on the front line you know they got a lot of stuff to do we got to make sure they're clear on their priorities and they have the the tools and capabilities and enablers that allow them to do their jobs incredibly well and uh, you know they are the real uh, heroes of our organization in terms of you know making sure that everything we talk about and plan for actually gets done
3: so um, what we've seen in the, in the beer industry is we've seen big brands like Budweiser have a problem because these smaller microbreweries have, gr- have grown really popular. And the microbreweries are closer to the community. They're closer to the consumer in regional in regional areas. And we really haven't seen that in sodas or snacks. So uh, Cassandra Carter wants to know about how do you get close to, to the consumer? And if there's any fear about what's happened in the beer industry could happen to the soda and the snacks as well.
2: Uh, oh, it's a constant fear. Um, we are, um, you know, we have a healthy level of paranoia in our organization. Um, and, you know, we are, uh, I think try to be cognizant and aware of all the competitors, including smaller emerging competitors, you know, in, in different spaces. So I think, uh it's not that they don't exist in snacks and beverages they definitely do um and uh the way to respond to those is is to understand where they're coming from what insight they're playing on um, and and then determine how you want to uh, we as a company want to strategically uh, play in that space so i'll use one example in food service we've got our own craft line of um of beverages we've got the stubborn soda company which we built in food service. It's a relatively small business. You know, it's, a, you know, call it a hundred million dollar business or slightly smaller in terms of retail sales. But, you know, it's a, it's a different lineup of products with a different set of ingredients for a different set of customers that is, you know, it's, it's craft. And- do you, hide the, do you hide the fact that it's Pepsi? Uh, we don't hide the fact that it's Pepsi, but the brand is stubborn. And, you know, that's what the consumer sees. So, you know, you look at a customer like Jersey Mike's, one of our best customers, uh, you know, outstanding partner. And, you know, we've um, we've been able to, I think, help them through Stubborn and they've been able to help us as well. So in both Fountain and cans, we, you know, we're building a small crap business in that way.
4: We have a great question from Richard Botello, who's uh, one of our C-suite network members as well, and he's asking, getting into the politics of brands. And so, you know, when you look at uh, the and think about the idea of politicians and organizations and companies developing their own heroic credos of true patriotism as a way to develop brand trust and authenticity, um, you know, addressing issues like racism and sustainability, uh, you know, social and stakeholder responsibility. What are your what are your thoughts on that, and where do you want to position PepsiCo when it comes to all of that kind of positioning?
2: I want to make sure I understand the question. Um, mm-hmm. Is it a direct question about like PepsiCo taking a political stance? Uh, and, uh,
4: and yeah,
1: let me know. let me reframe the question. Let me reframe yeah. the question just a wee bit, Scott, because I also want to make yeah. sure you don't have to walk too much on. Um, you know, fine line so that it doesn't catch up on things. I, is there responsibility for a brand to take uh, a stand on societal issues? And should you be doing that? And yeah. that, yeah. And I, okay.
2: Yeah. I think yeah. that's a fair right. question. No, no, totally fair. Totally fair. And, you know, and I, and I talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to politics, it's, uh, you know, we don't we don't want to take it aside in that regard. You know, we 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 respect choice. Right. We're the the ultimate cola wars. Right. You know, we're. Oh, I also we're if, I can, if I can. And-
1: yeah, if I can with that, I think once that a brand is established for numerous years that, and it becomes a bigger corporate brand. Yeah. I think we get further away from the roots of what maybe the founder was, where it was okay for a founder to take a political stand. Like let's, let's take Goya, for example. I mean, he's been a lot of controversy lately, but by God, he's an immigrant. He came to this country. He can say what the hell he wants. Kathy Truitt, the head of, uh, of, of Chick-fil-A, he's still the head of that company. He can say what he wants or the, or the head of Michael's uh, because they take Sunday off because he's a Christian. They can do those things. I think it's tougher for, a more corporate brand to do that because you you kind of get away from that and you morph into something else. But societal issues, totally different because you have to reflect the society a little bit, a lot different than the political side. And so I think that's a fair thing.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I'll, I'll use, you know, sustainability, the the racial equality journey and the work that we've made. Those are those to me are both massive global societal issues that we've taken a stand on. Um, But it's more than words, it's actions, right? And that's the most important thing for companies to do is to take action and to make investment and then to measure performance and results in that regard, you know, the same way we would on on growing a brand, right? So I, I think you do need to, I think consumers look for that. What I will say is it doesn't always have to be a company. In some instances, it can be a brand, right? And there can be different roles that different brands play. And, um, and I do think, Jeff, to your point, you know, there's a difference between a 125-year-old brand like Pepsi and a two-year-old brand like Bubbly and you know, the way that they're built and the amount of history they have. And you, know, you can build a brand differently and you can architect a role in society and a position in some of those challenges differently based on, um, call it the history of the but brand. It,
1: but it makes you a different kind of company too, right? And, 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 and you've already established, you know, brand is a promise delivered. So you've already established who you are, what you are. So the chances of you changing the spots in that leopard are long gone, long gone. It's hard, it's harder to do that. I, again, different on societal issues, and, and I'm just talking about what Rick has raised as political issues. I mean, for you to take a stand on something against, for or against Trump is a difficult thing to do, all right? You, there's, uh, you you, you, and the entire management team would get fired for that, and so would everybody else that might have even walked by the room or on that floor that day, you know? Yeah, it'd, so, be, a,
2: it'd be a good last day at PepsiCo story for me.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: but well, for you to take a <laughs> position on Black Lives Matter, for you to
1: take a position about... Do we wear masks or do we? You know those kind of things. Totally, I think uh, makes sense. And then you go look at a brand. Sorry to take this off, Guy, but I think it's an important position. You you look at somebody like a Starbucks. Well, why can Starbucks do some of that? Well, they're a community based brand. That's that's a big part of who they say they are, is serving the community. So when two black young men get arrested, you know, for loitering. <laughs> but, but that every, everyone in this entire call knows you can go into a Starbucks sit all day long and not buy one damn thing because they're a community and that's where they're at. So it's a little different. Go back, back to Trish and Greg. Sorry. I got on my, my soap stand there for, for a second.
4: I, I'm now I'm just more and more curious about how you are handling it across the brands. And, uh, because there has been, you know, so much. And if we just look at social injustice, um, you know, Anita asked the question, what are the changes that, you know, have been made, or how has that been addressed, or has it been publicly addressed? I'm, I'm
2: yes, uh, we, uh, we've we made a commitment, uh, we've made commitments. So, uh, that $400 million commitment that Ramon, our CEO, announced, uh, it's probably a month ago now, it includes, you know, a number of specific commitments. So, I'll give one example is to improve executive um, um, uh, representation amongst our um, uh, black employees by 30% at the executive level. So, that's a specific objective, executive level plus 30%. So that's and measurable incredible. and very and measurable.
0: measurable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep.
2: So he's going to uh,
1: have to, he's going to have to exceed that. I mean, gonna, that's going to have to happen. So, yeah.
2: yeah. So that's one. And then, you know, I talked about the, um, you know, the black restaurant initiative and there are a number of others across the business, across internally with our people and community as well, all of which are, um, you know, being built. We're building plans, sustained five-year plans with clear um, metrics against them that, yeah, now that now that we've made that commitment, we're twice a year we're going to be you know coming out and talking about what progress we're making.
3: Yeah. All right. I think that actually one more quick question, which which came from somewhere in the chat. When Pepsi and Coke get together, do you guys make fun of Dr Pepper? You can be honest with us.
2: <laughs> um, we don't spend a ton of time together, um, so uh, I think usually when we're together, probably Dr Pepper's in the room. Right. The KDP guys are there and it's some kind of industry forum. And we're trying to solve to that's I like the question, but just to close on a serious note, there are areas now in some of these areas we've talked about where collaborating as an industry can sometimes make sense, right? So if you want to help out the restaurant industry and help out impacted restaurant workers, you know, PepsiCo can do something. And you know what? If Coke jumps in and helps out and they want to help tens of thousands of restaurant workers and they want to put money into that, you know great, then we as an industry, you know, we can collectively do that. You know, sustainability, area where there are some areas where we want to do that. Sorry to take something funny and make it serious, but no, it's fine. Um, a high
3: tide soda we never make a fun of
2: beer. KDP, right? They're a part of ours. They're now what we call an allied brand, so... All right. All right.
3: You don't pick on Dr. Pepper. Well, thank you so much for coming.
0: You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com.